You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, back after a week off from the show, during which, Wade, you ran a marathon. First of all, congratulations. Uh, Second of all, welcome back to the world of sedentary people who watch movies all the time. Kevin, I, I really do appreciate it. And here's hoping this podcast episode won't be as long as it took me to run 26.2 miles. I'm definitely hoping it won't take us as long as it would take me to run that distance, or we'll have to have packed some provisions because it's going to be a long trip. (laughs) Speaking of long journeys, listeners, today we are discussing the new film from Sam Mendes, the World War I drama, 1917. And then we're going to be diving into the world of media with a look at Jay Roach's bombshell, the story of how three women took down the head of Fox News. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 233 of Seeing and Believing. Oh my gosh, I can't get fired. This is the only job I have ever wanted. I don't want to be on TV, I want to be on Fox. Uh-huh. My family, every day, every holiday, like, especially holidays, we watch Fox News. We're like addicts. Fox is how we do church. You know when they made the corner logo turn? Because folks had Fox burned into their TV screens? That's us. Kayla, you're not getting fired. He cannot scale his anger. He's a perpetual outrage machine. That's why crazies love him. No offense to your family. You want to do the folders? No crying at Fox. No crying. Yes, listeners, we are here, episode 233 of Seeing and Believing. Kevin, we're out for one week, and the Oscar nominations are released, and everything goes crazy, and we were not here to cover the (laughs) craziness. Yeah, you were running a marathon. I was busy getting a chest cold, which is why my voice might sound a little bit different, listeners. Sorry about that. And then, of course, the Oscars were announced. And yeah, wow, that, uh, oof. I don't know what to say about that. Do we, do, we, <laughs> do we want to talk about it or do we just want to acknowledge that it's an elephant in the room and then just move on? Yeah, maybe acknowledge it and then we can kind of briefly talk about it, maybe in our our middle segment. I, I will have to say this, Kevin. During the marathon, I thought about giving up, but the thing that kept me going is I was like, that's what the Academy wants me to do. That's what Joker <laughs> wants me to do. I'm not going to let it happen. <laughs> <laughs> you you knew that the light at the end of your tunnel was getting to talk about the Oscars. <laughs> I I don't know, Wade. I, I'm Whatever motivates you is great, but... Maybe next marathon you run, you can find a, a better motivator. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I'll finish a little bit quicker. Well, yeah, well, we could talk about that later, but I'm excited to jump into these two films that we have today because both of them were nominated. They're films from 2019 that we didn't have a chance to get to before the end of the year. And so usually in January, it's kind of a, kind of a slow month for movies, and so we kind of dip our toe back back in the previous year and we're going to do that with this episode fresh off its golden globe best picture victory sam mendez's new film 1917 continues to gain critical traction racking in a total of 10 oscar nominations now this is shot by the great roger deakins and 1917 tells the story of two british soldiers sent behind enemy lines during world war one to deliver a message 
that could possibly save countless lives. Film in what's designed to look like one continuous shot, Sam Mendes's picture is an immersive experience that not only explores the nature of sacrifice, bravery, and patriotism, but encourages viewers to place themselves in the shoes of those who fought for freedom in a war that doesn't get brought up much today. Kevin, I don't think it's any stretch to say that 1917 is the current frontrunner for Best Picture at the upcoming Academy Awards. With such hype, though, it's easy to become overly critical of, of really kind of any film, especially if it's posed to beat out much stronger contender. So as we get started today, my question to you is, hoopla aside, what do you think of 1917? Is it one of the best films of 2019, as some argue, or is it undeserving of all the attention that it's receiving as promoted by others? Well, I I guess... Given that introduction, I am going to position myself a little bit as the bad guy here in that I do think that this movie is maybe not as fully deserving of all the accolades it's been getting, uh, in my opinion. I think that there's a conceptually flawed way that it goes about telling its story that we'll get to later in our review. So I'm I'm lukewarm on the film as a whole. That said, I do think that it is richly deserving of the praise of its technical aspects. Uh, I have misgivings, I guess, about the entire project of presenting this film in, in a way that feels a little bit like a stunt. But stunts aside, this is the, the crafts on display here and the sheer logistics that went into making this as immersive as it is and making the single take conceit work as well as it does that's you know justly laudable and i think that most of the uh technical awards that the 1917 has been uh nominated for it's it's at least it deserves to be in, in the conversation there even if i am not quite sure that it's best picture material yeah i i think that this is a movie that will probably experience the king's speech. Uh, I don't know this the king's uh, speech uh, phenomenon. In that it's a fine film, it's a good film, but because it's being applauded as one of the best of the year, if not the best of the year, then I think it's going to receive some just some backlash. And I'm kind of with you, Kevin. I think this is a I think this is a fine film. I actually like it more than I don't like it. And I, you know, I, I thought it, I thought it was good. Technically, as you mentioned, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a feat. And this is immersive in every sense of the word. And I think that it's, it's not a gimmick that it's shot in what looks like one continuous take. It's done for a reason. Mendez wants to put us in the shoes of these soldiers. Now, with that comes some problems and some issues, but I think the idea behind it and the approach works out uh, fairly well. So I'm in the camp of, hey, I like this movie. It's not like a top 10 or top 20 of the year for me, but I think it's a fine film and it, it is good. I brought this up in the introduction. It is good that 
this is a film about World War One because we don't get very many World War One films, and it's nice to see that. And I was looking forward to that, and uh, I, I think it does pay off in that sense. Yeah, well, to that last point, it is worth noting that Mendez, who co-wrote the screenplay with Christy Wilson Cairns, did base this story off of actual accounts of uh, one person's life in the trenches, his uh, his grandfather's. So that is something that is informing this film. This isn't uh, pure fantasy like like uh, some other uh, war movies that, that you could probably name. So that's all good. I do think we're probably going to have to get into it, though, on the issue of the uh, purported immersiveness of Mendez's approach with this film. Because for me, I think the I, I see that he wants to create immersion with the single take conceit. I don't think it actually succeeds because the entire time I'm sitting in the theater watching the movie, I'm just in awe of, like I was talking about in, in my introduction, the the logistics, the technique, the amount of choreography with the camera and the actors and all of the off-camera personnel that went into making it all happen. All of that is just so obviously working under the surface with this film that far from being immersive for me, that act, the, the single take feel took me out of this film. I couldn't concentrate on anything that the, the film was trying to create me in terms of emotion or, or contemplation of war because I was constantly caught up in being wowed by the spectacle and by the, the technique. And... I think that that's a problem. Um, I've I've seen some people even accuse this film of being in bad taste, of essentially using a war film as a way to do a sort of a filmmaking stunt, to use it as a vehicle to show off rather than trying to find the most apt way to tell the story. I don't know if I would say it's offensive or in bad taste, but I do think that those people are onto something when they say that this film simply in trying to be as showy as it is with a single take conceit really takes a, a path that is not only more technically difficult and arduous for the people working on the film, but for the audience, it kind of works at cross purposes with itself where you don't have time to really feel anything because you're constantly go, go, going onto the next moment. And that that's, I guess, what this film ultimately feels like to me. It feels like a collection of moments that are in isolation, kind of impressive for the craftsmanship that went into them, but as a collective feels pretty thin and hollow at the end. Well, I think the real-time presentation does work against the film's momentum and the way that it tells its story, and that we don't get very many moments where we can just stop. At the same time, this feels like one of those quick journeys that you hop into and you are going the entire time and there is this hectic nature to it all that we don't have time to stop. We don't have time to really dwell in these small moments. We have to go. And the nature of the story is that this message has to get to a certain person by a certain time. I think, too, the technical aspects of the film, it can be distracting. There are long stretches of the movie, though, 
where I was not thinking about that. I thought about it at the beginning because I know that it's coming. Every once in a while, I'm thinking about this saying, oh, where are the seams? But there are these large sections, minutes, uh, where I'm, I'm just in the trenches with these soldiers and I'm just walking around with them. And I think what the movie does too is it adds this claustrophobic feel to the story. And so I'm watching this in the theater. It's, it's a smaller screen, one of the smaller theaters. I'm on the back row, so I'm far away, but I feel claustrophobic. There are no establishing shots that let me know where we're at. And as we get going in the story, I'm feeling what the characters are feeling. They don't get that establishing shot. I'm there with them, and that raises the tension, that raises the sense of danger. Now, like I said, the trade-off is we don't get as much storytelling as we could, but if we're dealing with emotion and we're dealing with effects, I think the one take does a pretty good job. And then two, we should probably throw this out there. A lot of people are saying video game, video game, video game. There is one section of the movie where I did feel like, hey, this kind of, this is kind of like a video game. And that's one character's running through a city, uh, just before sunrise and people are shooting at him. But the rest, you know, it would make a pretty boring video game about war. It's, it's not like any video game that I've played in terms of the objectives and, you know, there's not a lot of shooting. And so I, I don't think I agree with that. There are a couple of moments when, yeah, it, it does kind of feel like that. But overall, I, I think it works fairly well. Yeah, I don't agree with the, the video game accusation. I think that that's a, a pretty, in the end, kind of a, a facile comparison. Because the thing about video games is most of them, there is time to sort of like stop and smell the proverbial roses. Like you can, while playing a game, you can just stop and you can kind of just mess around if you want or contemplate the graphics or, you know, do any number of things. That's just, that's kind of the way that modern video games work. And I think my whole problem with 1917 is that it doesn't really provide you with any of that space for contemplation. There's all this wonderful production design that that Mendez and his team put on screen, but because Mendez is so laser focused and has has this tunnel vision on making the single take conceit work, we can't really sit with any of the horrors that he's showing us. It's just sort of it's it's there and then it's forgotten because you have to move on to the next thing. And that's a real shame when it does seem like there is kind of the kernel of a good idea here in the film in that it really does show kind of war as, as it's experienced in, in the literal trenches, you know, we see. So for example, there, there's this, uh, scene close to the beginning where the, the two main characters are they're They're the uh, two soldiers. One of them has a brother who's fighting on the, these other battle lines a little bit further towards the front and they, he, the brother and this friend are making, starting out on their journey with these orders to stop an attack that is walking into a trap. And so these two characters are sort of inching their way forward across what used to be the no man's land between their line and the enemy line. And they don't know if they're going to get shot. They don't know if the enemy is still there. So there's a lot of tension in the, in 
the entire sequence. They're you know they're crawling past uh, barbed wire, past the you know the dead horses that have been killed by shelling. There's this horrific shot of a human corpse that's somehow wrapped up in the barbed wire that lines the trenches and all of it is just it's it's very you can practically smell the 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 horror and the the waste of life and resources it's it's horrifying and then we move on to the next thing and those things kind of are lost they recede into the past and as the at least for me in the audience there's not really any cumulative weight of all of this stuff because the relentless march of time is is moving forward and i think that might be something that mendez is missing here is that for the men in the trenches this wasn't sort of a ephemeral experience where they saw something terrible and then they moved on with the de- their day and they kind of didn't remember it anymore those sorts of things stayed with them to the point where it accumulated and so you get these things like what we now know is ptsd they called shell shock because so much trauma and and fright and horror had accumulated on these men that it just sort of broke their minds and with this film being as sleek and propulsive as it is i think that it's actually paradoxically it's not recreating the feel of being in the trenches that Mendez really wants us to do. He wants to put us in the trenches, but we don't feel the trenches. We just sort of ex- we we experience some sensory things, but we don't really I feel a little bit inoculated against the horrors that the characters themselves are experiencing. I don't know. I mean, I I felt it and and I still think about just some of those scenes. That scene you're talking about with No Man's Land. That comes to mind kind of over and over again. And I think I think what happens here in the story is sure they get through quote unquote trench life, but then they run into what? They run into more death and destruction throughout this. And so what happens is it's this it's this cumulative effect of hey, it's not just in the trenches, but it's here. It's here. It's here. There's one scene where a character is floating down a river and kind of comes to this uh, kind of like a dam. There are some trees in the way, some branches, and there are all these bodies kind of just collected right there. And we see that at every single stop. War has desecrated everything. And I think it hits on one of the themes in the film, and that's nature. And we get these shots of of not only men who have perished, but shots of the land that has been destroyed, animals that have been slaughtered, trees that have been burned down, that have been cut down. There's one scene where these characters walk through a field and all these cherry blossoms have been cut down. And we get that. And then there are other moments when when we do kind of see the the beauty we get this kind of window of what the world was like we see some more cherry blossoms we see a field with wild flowers and we see the effects not just on the lives that are in the middle of this conflict but the earth itself has has been destroyed and so i think i think that works fairly well now 
because this is a very mission-based film and these characters are constantly moving, the trade-off is, as I mentioned, uh, the characters or the story. These characters are really more like avatars. And we, we get some conversations with these characters. They kind of tell some stories. They talk about family. But we don't get much more than that. And I contrast this with something like Saving Private Ryan. Now, Saving Private Ryan is very different. It's a story that's just, it's made up. Uh, but it, characters who are on this journey. And we do get this life. We do get these conversations where they tell stories about them being at home. Uh, we, we get this talk about Tom Hanks's character. What does he really do? And this big revelation that he's a, he's a teacher. We kind of feel for these people. We get to know these people. The characters here, uh, they are avatars, as I mentioned. And so there is a trade-off. But in terms of just the effect and the weight of the movie, I, I think that this one take, this one shot, this propulsive, hey, we're just going to keep moving, does have a particular effect. Now, Mendez can't rein that in and tell a story that's really kind of different from what you expect. But if we're dealing with feeling and emotions, it works for me. I mean, I, I will say that even as much as I think that this film is is conceptually flawed by by its very nature from start to finish, I do think that Mendez does find some fleeting moments of greatness in this film. And some of it does spring from his decision to go with a single take uh, feel to the film. I'm thinking of a moment <clears throat> after... Uh, we are uh, the character our main character has been uh with a, another battalion i guess they're they're going somewhere else he kind of hitches a ride with them and then um they they move on and a a river crossing has to happen and it seems you know kind of like we've had a respite and we're still kind of in that moment and then all of a sudden bullets start whizzing by and the sound design is is fantastic and that moment is so harrowing Mostly because literally just seconds before uh, these characters have been sitting together in a truck just chatting with each other. And then uh, after uh, a brief goodbye, then it's on into the next life-threatening situation. That's really good. And I do want to give credit where credit's due that moments like those, if they don't fully justify the single-take conceit, they at least uh, make it clear that Mendez is trying very intentionally to create a certain sort of effect. Yeah, so I do want to move to some of the themes in this film. And this this movie does look at the idea of patriotism and and duty. And there's talk of military awards and how special or not so special those are. I think those concepts are kind of introduced and kind of, I would say, left hanging. I, I don't know if we get much depth there. But... What I, I'm continually kind of reminded of in this film is, is the idea of, of service. And it really kind of clashes with many of the movies in our individualistic culture. And it's essentially, hey, follow your orders. Trust the people that have more knowledge than you. Do what you're told and sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Of other people. And I, I do appreciate that because throughout the beginning of this movie, when the two soldiers are given their job, 
Schofield is like, yeah, I'm going to do it. My brother's there. And, and Blake, who's played by Dean Charles Chapman, is like, well, why? How, how do we know we can, we can fulfill this? Shouldn't we wait? And Schofield constantly says, no, this is what we're told to do. This is what they're telling us to do. This is how we need to trust them. And there's this kind of interesting take. And, and there's something that I'm drawn to with this. Um, characters who are deeply relying on each other in order to be successful. And that requires humility, that requires sacrifice. And throughout the movie, we we get that, that some people are, they are just one piece of the puzzle and they fulfill a role and then that role is done and they have to move on. And I think this is really a big effect that comes towards the end of the movie as we see the conclusion of this big story. But I think Mendez is, is kind of onto something here, and I, I think it really does kind of uh, speak to, yeah, service and to patriotism and, and, and freedom. But there's also this ambiguity, too, of war and, and bravery in war isn't always what it's cracked up to be. And, uh, yeah, I, I think there's kind of all these ideas kind of running through this movie. Yeah, in that way, this film is actually a very distinctively World War One story. World War One was, I guess, sort of the the conflict where the the world kind of realized what modern industrial industrialized warfare could do, and also the limitations of things like patriotism and just following orders when it was manifested under these conditions. In in this case, they were the the war was started over something very abstrusely political that did not really hinge on the clear good versus evil stakes of something like World War II. Uh, there uh, was the famous you know that famous standoff on the Western Front where you know waves of soldiers were sent in running into machine gun fire and all, all for essentially nothing. And the disillusionment that comes with realizing that the people in charge didn't necessarily have the best interests of the little guy at heart. And the little guys kind of had to fight for their own survival and also lean on each other in order to stay sane and survive. And I think that 1917 does find some gesture of that in casting these these luminaries of of British acting as the officer. So we've got Colin Firth as the general who sets the whole plot in motion by giving our two soldiers these two orders. There's Benedict Cumberbatch as the officer who just really wants to fight and to heck with the consequences uh, at the uh, front lines. There's uh, Mark Strong as a as an officer who uh, helps. He he's the officer of that group of people that uh, our our protagonists hitch a ride with to that bridge crossing. And all of these these people, they're recognizable faces. And Mendez, by casting them in that way, makes us feel like oh these these are familiar presences. Like I can rely on these people to sort of be recognizable types. And in doing that, he enhances what the feeling of a lot of the soldiers in the trenches might have been, which is these people know what they're doing, so I'm going to do what they're told, despite being surrounded by such chaos that 
it it really doesn't seem like it should be that way. And I think Mendez's approach, for all its other faults, I think he does find uh, something interesting in uh, his casting decisions and the way that interacts with the single take. No, I, I definitely uh, agree with that. Listeners, that is our review of Sam Mendez's 1917. Let us know what you think. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Is it one of the best films of 2019, or has it been overhyped? You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about Bombshell here in just a minute. song is Seasons by Andreas Madsen. We really appreciate all the listeners who've taken an opportunity to support our Patreon page. When you do that, you keep the podcast going. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. A lot of different levels of support that you can offer the podcast. One of those, it's our favorite, is the what can you buy for $5 level. That brings to mind kind of a lot of questions, Kevin. And the one that I just can't get out of my mind is what can someone buy for five bucks? I wanted to ask that to you today. What what could someone hypothetically buy for for five dollars? Now $5 would be good for a small terracotta figurine of Jesse Eisenberg. So you know, if you want to kind of build your own little army of terracotta people like they have in that uh, one tomb in China, you know, you can shell out $5 a pop and just populate your cellar or perhaps a shed somewhere with just these tiny, you know, six inch tall uh, little Jesse Eisenbergs, if that's if that's what you're into. Yeah. Yeah. And you can choose between like 30 minutes or less Zombieland Eisenberg or even if you're feeling really just kind of I don't know really into the Oscars you could do the social network Eisenberg so a lot of kind of different kinds there um yeah only five dollars listeners you could also support us for five bucks on Patreon once again that's patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast 
Yeah, and we also want to uh, give a shout out, not just to Jesse Eisenberg, but to our listeners who, even though we took last week off, we were really appreciative that, that they're still with us. And we actually had some feedback come in over that week about our top 10 episode, Wade. So two weeks ago was our uh, extra long uh, top 10 episode movies of 2019 episode and uh, we got some listener feedback responding to that sharing some of their own faves Uh, we heard from hot dog thursday if that is his real name mr thursday says one that seems to have been overlooked is malik's a hidden life such a beautiful film and a challenging one as well the faith and commitment of the lead characters left me stunned during and after knowing there's little chance i could do what they did Thank you, Hot Dog Thursday, for writing in. I'm really glad that you had a chance to see A Hidden Life. Wade, I've been seeing a lot of people talking about how they were really interested in seeing that movie, but it just was, you know, it came and went with little fanfare, and they. I worry now that, that we're kind of out of luck now that it didn't get any Oscar love. Yeah, I I don't know if it's playing anywhere right now, maybe a couple of different theaters, but... Hopefully, you know, it'll stream soon and just watch it on a big screen at home, turn the lights down, try not to pause it, watch it all the way through, and um, that's just as good almost, I guess, Um, but hopefully more people can check that movie out. We also got a couple of tweets from Thomas Zack. He responds to our episode where, Kevin, we reviewed Little Women and Uncut Gems, and he says... This episode should have been called Alternate Altmans. Gerwig, the Altman of Empathy, and the Safty Brothers, the Altman of Acid, or on Acid. So I, yeah, I mean, I, that's, I get that. The cast is too small, probably, for an Altman movie, but I, I think Thomas is, you know, he's on to something. And then he says, God bless you. Kevin McLenathan, for putting The Souvenir at number two on your top ten list. It's my number two as well. The final frame of that film is Transcendence. So The Souvenir getting some love, Kevin. I didn't show it enough love, but other people seem to be liking your pick. Yeah, I was really happy to hear from Thomas about that film. It was not... It did not get as much attention as I thought it deserved, so it's always nice, Thomas, to to hear that there's a fellow souvenir stan out there somewhere. Uh, Looking forward to the next installment in the souvenir cinematic universe later this year. I hope that that you'll be there opening night. I I hope to be as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in, in in the sequel. So, Kevin, we did mention something about the Oscars. We can kind of briefly cover it. Uh... Is there is there one thing with the Oscar nominations before we move on to our review of Bombshell that just stood out to you or surprised you? Maybe good surprise, bad surprise, uh, pure emotion. What do you think of the nominations? Uh, okay, well, the nominations, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. They're pretty bad for the most part. Um, just especially the, the acting nominations, it was really disappointing to see uh, Lupita Nyong'o get uh, shut out of the Best Actress nominations. I was I was not particularly thrilled also to see... Um, like, I, I like Scarlett Johansson quite a bit. Uh, I just... 
I, d I just don't think Jojo Rabbit's that good, and I think that there were much more deserving films that could have taken its slots in the various categories it was nominated for. That said, Wade, I do have to give credit where credit is due. Parasite had a really big uh, nomination uh, announcement. Uh, seeing Parasite nominated for as much as it was was really gratifying to me, and I think everything it was nom for, nominated for was richly deserved, and I would probably, I would hope that it, it wins Best Picture. It probably won't. That'll probably be, I, I'm guessing 1917 is going to take home the big prize, but if I, if I were going to pick Parasite, it'd be Parasite all day. Yeah, I, I was really glad to, to see that. Uh, I, you know, just my top 10 list, my number two, my number three, my number four, and I'm trying to think, I think my number six uh, are on the Best Picture nomination list. So th that's pretty cool. I am also really excited that Ford v. Ferrari's on there. It was my number eight pick of the year. So there, I think there's a, a lot of good Best Picture nominations. Obviously, not a huge fan of Jojo Rabbit, not a fan of, of Joker, uh, so yeah, that was, that was disappointing. And then too, Kevin, I, and it's kind of hard to believe this, but my favorite film of 2019, Apollo 11 was not nominated for best documentary feature. It was not there. And I was very mm -hmm. surprised that just kind of took me by surprise. I almost didn't even look at that part of the list because I just figured it would be there and it's not. Um, so yeah, I was surprised and it, you know, The Irishman got a lot of love. I was really excited about that. The acting nominations, uh, there are a couple categories where it's like, yeah, I think there's one good one. Uh, or, or I should <laughs> say one deserving one. There's a lot of good performances, but deserving performances. So, But ultimately, I don't know, I don't know if I would say I'm surprised because it feels like this is kind of the norm recently. Um, so I, I wasn't expecting too much. Um, but like I said... It helped get me through the marathon, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it had it had that going for it, at the very least. Listeners, if you have thoughts about the Oscar nominations, we, of course, uh, are super interested in, in hearing you complain or tell us that we're wrong and that we're jerks and that these were actually good nominees. There were plenty of good ones, we do have to have to admit. So if you want to highlight some of your favorites, let us know. You can email or tweet us, as we mentioned before. We'd love to hear from you. Colonel McKenzie is in command of the second. He sent word yesterday morning he was going after the retreating Germans. He is convinced he has them on the run, that if he can break their lines now, he will turn the tide. He's wrong. Colonel McKenzie has not seen these aerials of the enemy's new line. Come around here, gentlemen. Three miles deep, field fortifications, defenses, artillery, the like of which we've never seen before. The second are due to attack the line shortly after dawn tomorrow. They have no idea what they're in for. And we can't warn them. As a parting gift, the enemy cut all our telephone lines. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Akust. Deliver this to Colonel McKenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions, 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? 
Yes, sir. We're back with segment two of Seeing and Believing. And Wade, I am hopeful that this episode actually turns out sounding pretty good. I, like I said, I am kind of, while you were running a marathon, like the physical specimen you are, I was uh, infected with a chest cold and I am still trying to strike the balance between saying halfway intelligent things and not just dissolving into coughing fits. So here's hoping that that works out okay. Uh, It'll be a struggle, but we we forge on. You know, I feel like in the winter months, Kevin, it's just this alternate. If you're feeling good, I'm sick. And if you're sick, I'm feeling good. So I, I'm trying to think how many, how many episodes in the winter do we record where both of us are like at a hundred percent? I'm, oh, I'm man. not sure. We'll never know. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but let's say the next time that you get sick, that counts as me running a marathon. Oh yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll yeah. Just, <laughs> that, that's the way it works, right? <laughs> no, it's definitely it's true. It'll happen. Well, um, we are going to be talking in the second segment, Wade, about a film that was nominated for some of the Oscars that we were briefly discussing there in our middle segment. We're going to be talking, of course, about Bombshell. Based on the real scandal, Bombshell tells the explosive story of the women who brought down the man who helped create one of the most powerful and controversial media empires of all time, Fox News. But at the heart of this film is also a portrait of how courage is forged in the moment as three very different women, Gretchen Carlson, played by Nicole Kidman, Megyn Kelly, played by Charlize Theron, and a fictionalized reporter, played by Margot Robbie, resolve to fight back against unchecked power and abuse. So, Wade, this uh, got a lot of attention uh, at the Oscar nominations for its performances. Both Robbie and Theron got attention for their performances, as well as the makeup artist who, uh, it has to be conceded, does an uncanny job of transforming Theron into Megyn Kelly and John Lithgow into the villainous Roger Ale. So that's got a lot of buzz rotating around it. I am curious to know, Wade, what your opinion was of the performances at this film center and how they played into your evaluation of the movie as as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I think the performances are fine. I I wouldn't say that they're just, you know, all too special. I, I think with performances like this, they're bound to get more attention because these individuals are playing other people. And... They are having to change their speech patterns. They're having to change the way that they look, the way that they act, just to be like their real-life counterpart. And if they do that well, then it's seen as a good performance. And if they you know, if they don't look like that person or act like that person, it's seen as a, a bad performance. I think it's all, I think it's all fine. Uh, you know, so just to kind of lay my cards on, on the table, I didn't expect to like this movie very much just because – it reminded me uh, of Vice and of The Big Short. They just kind of feel like in this they're they're in the same arena. And I I thought it was I thought it was uh, okay. There's some big weaknesses in the film, but I think it's a pretty straightforward story. And the performances, like I said, I think I think they're fine. There's a lot of emotion and even some anger embedded into this. Some of it's funny, so I I think it I think it works okay. It's going to receive a lot of buzz just because it is timely, just because it is based on these real life individuals and because the performances and the makeup, it all kind of 
helps to convey the point that these people are playing real life people. So that's kind of a longer answer than I think you're looking for. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about just this movie as a whole. Well, there's a reason why this film is reminiscent of movies like Vice and The Big Short, and that's because it was written by Charles Randolph, who also was the screenwriter for The Big Short. And I think when we talk about this film's problems, we have to start there, at least for me. I'm sorry to say that I just, I do not like Charles Randolph's approach to screenwriting. I think uh, his habit of breaking the fourth wall is lazy and leads to some confusion about what the film's perspective is. And I think Bombshell is really no exception. There's... There's kind of a fundamental confusion at the heart of this film about a few things, about you know who who are who our protagonist is, like who is kind of the the main character. Are are all three of the central characters are they all protagonists? Uh, if that's the case, why is Gretchen Carlson kind of just not present for the entire film? She's almost it's almost like she inhabits a different universe than the other two women, even though their their fates and the uh, cause that they're all fighting for are so intimately tied together. Um, it's it's not very clear uh, who any of these women really are beyond their function as narrative components. Randolph and director Jay Roach really do spend a lot of energy laying out the pieces on the chessboard, so to speak. So the, the three women, their experiences with harassment and abuse at Fox News and where that places them in relationship to the conflict when Carlson decides to sue Roger Ailes for for what he did. That that's all set up very very meticulously by Randolph, but I think what gets lost in that is a sense of these women as as people, as like what what motivates them? Why do they want to work at Fox News despite the toxicity that is part of the culture there? What what makes them tick? And I think we get glimpses of that. And this is, I think, where we go back to that initial question I asked is the, the performances and the effect they have on the movie. Because I do think the performances by these three principles are all very, very good. I especially like Robbie as the uh, the reporter who is just starting out. She's a little bit wet behind the ears and she really wants to make a good impression and start rising through the ranks. And there's a scene where she is on the phone with a friend and she's trying to come to terms with the abuse that she's experienced. And it's heartbreaking. And Robbie really gets to the heart of what I think is a very thinly written character. But Robbie and these other and the other two primary actresses do a really good job of working with what they're giving and find, finding a way to make that compelling. And I think that's all to their credit no credit at all, at all to Charles Randolph and Jay Roach. <laughs> well, I, I think you might be a little too hard on uh, those two. But yeah, I mean, that that scene where Robbie just kind of breaks down is the emotional center of this movie. And that's the emotional climax of the movie. And it's just well done. I I think the films, it, it it's a pretty entertaining picture in terms of, it just being captivating as we watch these individuals figure out 
how to navigate this situation. It's a heartbreaking picture, and I think there's emotion there, and I think that kind of carries it along as well. I think that one of the biggest problems with this film is how to handle these subjects, and it kind of goes into what you're talking about too. What makes these individuals want to work at this place? And in one sense, the movie seems to say, hey, these people contributed to a toxic system and this toxic system hurt them, and something that they helped build fell down on their heads. And I think I think there's a I think there's a story there. In another sense, though, it kind of dances this line. This is where the film makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Is it takes strides, especially with Theron's character, uh, Megan Kelly, to to essentially say like, "Hey, she's made some really bad choices," and she is just kind of out on left field in certain issues. And so one in particular is they highlight the the time where on on the air, Kelly talks about Jesus being white. And it's a terrible clip. It's kind of infamous now. And that's shown and the film just kind of really just sets its focus there for a moment. And there are other times when it, when it seems to do that to kind of poke at her character. And I, I, in, in some of those brief moments, I get this sense that the film is saying, hey, you're here at Fox News. You're part of the system. What do you, th- you know, what do you think is going to happen? And that, that just kind of makes me feel a little uncomfortable because it's like, hey, not that the film is saying, hey, you deserve this, but it's saying like, hey, like you put yourself in this situation, which kind of goes against oh, so many things that we see in the Me Too era and what that movement is trying to say that, hey – these people don't deserve this. So I think the film kind of, it doesn't land there. It walks that line. But because of that, it, and because it doesn't have a main character, it really struggles with empathy and it, it really struggles with how it's depicting these characters and their struggles and some of their pain. And it doesn't always work when it really wants to and when it really needs to. Like here's where what I mean when I'm talking about the the film not really getting under the skin of these women because I do think that Megyn Kelly, for example, is um, at, at least when thinking of her as a movie character, not as the flesh and blood ke- Kelly, but as we might portray her in a movie about her life, she is a very complex character. She's obviously very intelligent, very ambitious, very driven, and yet she uses all those gifts in service of uh, in this film in service of an organization that doesn't deserve that kind of uh intellectual firepower um and i think a film that was more interested in really probing the depths of that complexity would actually be extremely interesting i want to watch a movie that really delves into Megyn Kelly kind of struggling with the the tension be- between wanting to be a success and wanting to have a career while also grappling with the fact that she has to essentially make nice with Donald Trump on the air because her bosses tell her to, even though Trump said some horrible, horrible things about her. I think those, those kinds of complexities are hinted at in this movie, but they're almost wholly left um unplumbed those those depths are unplumbed and kind of is content to skate along the surface and say yeah she's conflicted and then it moves on but it doesn't really explore 
what that conflicted uh, feeling is like for her or where it leaves her or what kinds of contradictions that implies about her as a character and maybe about the sorts of people who tune into Fox News day in and day out. Like what, what makes the people tick doesn't seem to be a question that Charles Randolph is <laughs> And I'm picking on Randolph a little bit just because I I just I have a vendetta against the big short, I guess. But I just I think that there's a tendency for the movies that he writes to focus on facts at the expense of really getting at the why underneath those facts. And I, I, I think that especially for a movie about journalism, which is about not just giving you the facts, but also contextualizing them and exploring them and making them intelligible to the audience. I think that the fact that the movie fails in a story about three journalists is, uh, it's just, it's really disappointing. I, I think there are moments when he does do this well. So the film wrestles with the Donald Trump, Megyn Kelly relationship and we get to see her kind of preparing for this post-interview with President Trump. I think it was before he was president. And then her and her husband are watching that afterwards. And her husband is saying, like, you let him off. You let him off easy. And I remember thinking that same thing whenever I watched the interview. And she says, I just want it to stop. And I, I thought that that was a good scene because it truly kind of empathizes with this character and it's easy for us to say oh she she did it just because of this this and this and she did the interview this way but we get to this we get to this like this center emotion of i I just want i want all this to stop and so i'm willing to risk this just to get back to normal just to somehow survive and I think when the film kind of leans into that, it works well. When it just allows these characters to deliver their lines with empathy and, and with compassion and just with emotion. And that's what we got in in Robbie's speech while, while she's on the phone. The film is less interesting when we get caricatures. Uh, Robbie is this uh, millennial evangelical, but her character doesn't feel like any evangelical that I've ever met. Um, <laughs> it, do, it does feel like they're trying to write an evangelical without actually having talked to one. Yeah, like they're like, we observe, we observe some, um, you know, millennial evangelicals in the wild, and we're going to write down in our notebook what they must be like. And yeah, I mean, it, it, and so that's there too. The, the You know, the camera... Uh, also has this and it's kind of fun in some ways it it is what it is the camera will zoom in on character's face you know this is kind of breaking news and we get breaking the fourth wall at the beginning and then it's kind of strange because it doesn't happen and then it happens at the end and and it definitely feels like when when the film tries to force things it doesn't work but when it just kind of allows us to be with these characters and watch them tick and watch them kind of navigate this and present them with difficult choices, it, it does uh, make something happen. And those moments, while they might be few and far between, I think they're still present in the movie, maybe just not present enough. Yeah, the the directing in this movie really raises the question of why this wasn't just a documentary because I don't know that – Roach really finds a way to thread the needle where he's presenting 
you know, exposition kind of like orienting us in this conflict in a way that people who aren't following it obsessively can can understand while still, you know, making a, you know, a movie with, you know, with stars and with crackling dialogue and with all the hallmarks of an awards-worthy fiction feature. But he doesn't really find the way to to make those two things work in harmony with each other. So we get a lot of shots of, you know, somebody walks up and then it's like, this is Sean Hannity. And, you know, another character interests him is like, this is uh, Bill O'Reilly. And it's fun to see actors portray these these characters. Some of them are, their acting is so on point and and their the makeup is so well done that they're almost indistinguishable from the real people that they're portraying. And that's that's fun, but it also leads to kind of a, I don't know, an amateurish experience where, where you're watching it and you feel like it's, it's sort of like you're getting annotations or footnotes to every scene where the subtext is completely spelled out, the characters are all clearly labeled, and occasionally the movie will stop and we'll get real-life interludes from the actual... Uh, people involved, like the actual women who made these uh, accusations uh, against Roger Ailes, and they're not played by actors. They're the the real women. So why why are those two things side by side in this movie? It's not really clear why why they're why they're stitched together so haphazardly. And the seams showing in this way just really calls attention to the other parts of the film that aren't working. I, I will say one of the, one of the better scenes in the movie. Uh, is the scene that we see in one of the trailers where all three women get on the elevator at once and they're all kind of going up this level. And it's been very like kind of force fed to us that there are hierarchies and the levels in this building represent those hierarchies. And so, uh, but but we kind of get that and uh, we get them kind of looking at each other and they kind of, they kind of know what's happening. They can kind of read each other's thoughts. And it's just kind of this quiet moment. And I think those types of moments, when the film is able to just sit in those scenes, it it, it works well. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely one of those movies that um, probably is trying to do too much with a story that I think can go a, a long way on its own. Listeners, that is our review of Bombshell. It's currently playing in theaters, nominated for a couple different Oscars. Let us know what you think of the movie. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com Kevin, we've reached the point in the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend to our listeners today? Uh, well, since we uh, reviewed 1917, I was thinking about uh, war movies I could recommend. And I, I, had, I had a few, and then I rejected them because I'm like, well, you know, nobody really needs to be told that The Bridge on the River Kwai is a great movie. Like, that's kind, of, that's kind of an obvious pick. So I was trying to come up with one that might be a little bit lesser known, and I ended up settling on the 2010 documentary Restrepo, directed by Tim Hetherington and Sebastian Junger. Uh, this is a documentary that uh, explores the year that Junger and Hetherington spent in Afghanistan on assignment for Vanity Fair. They were embedded with a platoon uh, in the Korangal Valley uh, near uh, an outpost that was called Restrepo. And the documentary essentially just 
records the lives of the soldiers, kind of everything that's mundane guard duty to a really harrowing sequence where they're kind of out in the open and they're being fired upon and they have to improvise and react. And I think it's it's a remarkable documentary simply for having that kind of on-the-ground footage. I mean, just seeing that firsthand is pretty unforgettable. But what Hetherington and Junger do beyond that is they give you a good sense of, like, in the same way that 1917 tried to give you a sense of what it would have been like to actually be down in the trenches with the soldiers, Hetherington and Junger are doing something similar with the modern warfare and the uncertainty of of anti-terrorism in the Afghanistan war. And I think they, they do it with flying colors and it's just a, a really sobering, uh, fascinating documentary. So 2010's Restrepo, that's my pick for this week. Yeah, I mean, that's a good pick. I, I have not seen the film, uh, surprisingly. I, I just, I've always meant to get to it, but um, I've heard so many good things. So it's, it's definitely something I need to check out. Now, you were you were thinking of war movies. I decided to go with a war movie. I feel like I've... I've probably talked about this movie before. So if I have, forgive me, but it is a World War I film. It's probably the best World War I film ever made. Uh, I, I, at least I think so. And it's the 1937 film, The Grand Illusion, from Jean Renoir. And this is a film about two French soldiers during World War I who are, are captured they're imprisoned in a POW camp, and they try to escape from those uh, camps that they're imprisoned in, and they're eventually sent to this fortress uh, that has a reputation of being inescapable. If you know, if we're looking at 1917, and it's it's about the thrills, it's about the action. Um, this film, The Grand Illusion, is about uh, the relationships that these soldiers have with one another as well as the relationship they have with other Germans. And we really get a just a beautiful, moving picture about the nature of war and the people on both sides of that conflict, caught up in that conflict. So if you haven't seen it, I mean, it's, it's an amazing film. It's on the Sight and Sound Top 100 list. Uh, yeah, check it out, The Grand Illusion, 1937. Yeah, it's a, a good pick for sure. Uh, was that one of the movies that you saw as part of your project to watch all the way through the AF, AFI Top 100? Yeah, it is. It is. I, I, st- I still haven't completed it. I have seven films left to go on the 100. I've done the top, nice. I've done the top 50, but yeah, that's, that's one I sought out because of that and i'm so glad that i did yeah well that's a a good pick for sure well listeners as always make sure to rate and review the podcast that is all we've got if you can hop onto itunes search seeing and believing and give us a star review type that out thank you for listening to this week's episode it's brought to you by christandpopculture.com our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. 